So today I'm going to I'm going to talk about color television, but I want to preface it by saying I'm actually you're not going to see any programming today. I'm not going to really talk much about programming. I'm going to talk about um, images and content to a certain degree, um, but you'll see I'm really talking about the management of color and color harmony um, during the first few years of the 50s. So oh. Well, okay. But you, I wanted to just give you a frame for this. This is a book that I'm working on, which is the a history of color television, primarily American color television, although the kind of pre-early stuff also um, uh, covers some international ground. But if you, you, you can't quite see the numbers there, but this is how the chapters are um, broken up for me. So I'm starting really in the, in the late 20s. Um, at the moment of innovation, um, going into a period, the, the second chapter, which carries the same name as the talk, but it's a bit different, um, is it's defining and standardizing color and goes into not only the standardization process for um, color television, but talks about standardization for color across industries and also talking about it in terms of um, uh, philosophy and psychology and psychophysics and so forth. Then uh, ch uh, the next chapter um, is in part where what I'm going to talk about today. There's some of this and some pulled from the second chapter. Um, and then you see a, there's a focus that moves chronologically to um, eventually to full conversion um, at, towards the, into the 60s. And so I'll give you a bit of the sort of background within this talk, too, about um, this post-war period um, and some of the standardization debates um, and history of the networks. But a lot of this book towards the end tends to focus more on NBC because one, there is quite more, there's a lot of more archival material around for NBC, but that's not the only reason. Because really the history of color television in the US during that period was largely defined by NBC as they um, were selling RCA sets and they really worked to brand themselves in relationship to color. So some of this history, too, focuses on NBC, but um, also uh, brings in other networks. Um, okay. So in June 1951, Goodman Ace cynically addresses the arrival of color television. He, like some other critics at the time, was not convinced of the need for the new technology so early in the medium's development and was instead suspicious of the motives behind the move to color. Ace wrote... Um, so color is the transfusion of television, is the transfusion television needs to arouse it from its coma of monotony. Of course, it's unfortunate so young a medium needs a shot in the arm so soon, but it's hereditary, following closely on the pattern of its parent, the motion picture industry, developing the same anemic symptoms and doctoring itself with the same miracle drug, color. Saul Carson, Robert Louis Shan, and Jack Gould were at, also at various times of the opinion that color might impede the medium's development, that it might be the network's attempt to cover up for poor programming, or that color was only a tool to take advantage of the television market in some way. As Neil Harris has argued, so suspiciously was television viewed by many critics then that color sets, the most complex um, consumer commodity that had ever been mass-produced seemed like a wooden victory, a source of shame, a measuring stick to berate all involved in the industry. <clears throat> in the midst of such criticism, RCA and NBC invested heavily in and expanded its promotion of color television technology, spending the majority of the 50s working to brand itself in relationship to color. While CBS and ABC did not start making the transition until closer to 1960. And there's a little bit of a bumpy history there that I'll touch on. 
Despite NBC's efforts, Time magazine declared color television, quote, the most resounding industrial flop of 1956. And as late as 58, the same magazine opened an article on the subject with, quote, hailed as a prodigy, color TV is still a retarded child. Um, However, at the start of the decade, the process of standardization and the race for FCC approval was still the most visible aspect of the um, network's engagement with color television. Um, After a very public battle, the FCC initially had gone with um, CBS's system in 1950, but then reversed its decision in 53, instead approving the NTSC standard, which was based on RCA and Philco's separate proposals for compatible systems. In the years in between, both CBS and NBC aired a number of select programs to a remarkably small number of set owners, mostly people who already had relationships with the industries um, and were given television sets by the networks, such as critics, dealers, sponsors, and assorted friends. Um, For example... Um, at the time of CBS's airing of the first network color program in history, which was called Premier, in the summer of 51, there were only 25 sets receiving the program in New York City, um, which is the largest of the five East Coast cities receiving the program. That said, an additional, group of, uh, an additional small group of people would have seen NBC and CBS's public color television demonstrations um, in the first couple of years of the decade, and there were plans to place color sets in department stores, supermarkets, and taverns um, later in 1954. However, before public sites of color television viewing became a broad experience, most Americans had not yet seen color television, but had heard much about it mostly through the regular press coverage of the color wars. In terms of envisioning what color television might look like and what it might mean to them, potential viewers might have seen publicity from the networks touting the coming of color, but more often they read descriptions by critics and reporters which painted a mixed picture. Color was met with much ambivalence, and it seemed to many to be simply too much too soon. Some of the suspicion and controversy that surrounded color television stemmed from what was perceived to be the questionable motives and political maneuvering by particular networks, set manufacturers, and station owners. However, there were also many in in the industry who were not completely convinced that the technology was developed enough by 1950 to either set standards for or to become an immediately viable consumer good. As the technology proved to be both highly complicated and often temperamental when used in public and press demonstrations and field tests. Even in late 53, after the standards issue had been settled, Gould both emphasized the incredible potential color television had on daily life and warned of the problems that color presented to networks. This is Gould. A new color age soon will be upon us. Psychologically, watching color TV in the familiar surrounding of one's own home produces an almost uncanny reaction. Actually, turning a knob and seeing the screen light up in different hues amounts in some ways to an almost completely new experience of the meaning of color. But the presence of color TV in the parlor also is a sobering experience in regards to the reality of the tinted medium at the moment. Seeing is still believing, and one need not look at color overly long to realize that considerable problems lie ahead, both on the receiving and the transmitting ends. In Gould's review, we find a framing for color TV that repeated itself during its development and early years of dissemination. The idea that color carried big promises of change and beauty along with big possibilities for failure. The very public discussions about color's many excesses only served to heighten the network's um, anxieties and sense of what was at stake. 
During the first few years of the 50s, color was framed in relationship to excess in a number of ways. Perhaps most, perhaps most significantly, it was excessive in terms of cost for the networks, stations, and sponsors as it required purchasing of expensive new equipment, the building of new studios, and the conversion of old ones, the cost of technician training, and simply higher production costs overall. Networks would also charge significantly higher ad rates for color commercials than black and white. There was the very real cost for consumers, too, as by the time they eventually entered the market, the $1,000 price tag for color sets seemed outrageously expensive. Excessive promises had been made by the networks in regards to what the new color technology could do for advertising, especially in terms of how it could elicit extreme emotional responses from the viewers. And technically, there were problems to contend with in terms of excess saturations and how color might overload or tax the human eye as well as the excessive amount of bandwidth um, color might require. Even the very use of color came with a repeated warning from experts to executives that, quote, overuse of color for color's sake must be avoided, as though color was an excessive addition that threatened to further destabilize an already precarious narrative, commercial, and technical system. Oops. Beyond the overt and critical discourses about excess, David Batchelor's notion of chromophobia is a helpful concept in identifying and parsing out the features and origins of this anxiety, as it draws upon one of the more historically significant conceptual frameworks for color. In his 2000 book of the same name, Batchelor explores the West's social and cultural relationship to color through the concept of chromophobia, arguing that color is often positioned as both dangerous through associations with notions of, quote, the oriental, the primitive, the vulgar, the queer, or the pathological, and trivial, the feminine, the superficial, the cosmetic. Batchelor writes, quote, color is routinely excluded from the higher concerns of the mind. It is the other to the higher values of Western culture. Or perhaps culture is the other to the higher values of color, or color is the corruption of culture. Chromophobia and related moral associations of color are certainly present in the anxious framing of the reproduction of color during the mid-20th century and can be found quite explicitly in both the archival documents and the press accounts from the period. There was much anxious ruminating about color in all sectors of the television industry, and a good portion of it could be located in the positioning of color on multiple fronts as simultaneously trivial and excessive, which were intertwined with concerns over the prematurity of the medium and its not yet fully standardized processes and functions. RCA and NBC spent the early part of the 1950s not only working to perfect color technology, but also trying to simultaneously contain and expand color use through introduction of color management techniques. Um, These techniques included implementing widespread color training by color experts and consultants, employing a system of onset color harmony, developing systems of calibration at the points of production and reception, and relying on theories of functional color. Today I'll argue that these discourses and strategies of management and standardization taken up primarily, but not exclusively, by NBC had developed in relationship to both the standardization experience and the larger post-war color explosion in design and commercialism and reflected not only the promising possibilities of electronic color, but also the industrial and cultural anxieties that existed around its potential for excess disruption and triviality. However, before I begin to detail NBC's strategies for color and the level of production, at the level of production and reception, I, will, I want to provide a very brief outline of the issues raised in the period of technical color standardization that preceded them. <clears throat> 
The standardization of a U.S. color television system in the 1940s and early 50s was in large part discussed in relation to historical developments in color theory, colorimetry, which is the, the science of quantifying color perception, color design and industry, signal processing, psychophysics, psychology, and of course, what had already been established for color film and, and monochrome television. Some early to mid-20th century forms of color management and or standardization came out of the industrial and design arts, such as the textile, paint, printing, lighting, and plastics industries, and were devised specifically with consumers in mind. It was these particular organizations and models that formed the basis for the post-war expansion in the business of the deliberate naming, selecting, and branding of commercial color by color experts, who went by such titles as color forecasters, color engineers, and color stylists, and who were a central part of what design historian Regina Blazenik has referred to as the color explosion of the post-war years, which served as, quote, evidence of the extravagances of a growth economy and the maturation of American consumer society. While commercial color design and use for consumer goods, lighting, film, um, Lighting and film technology was highly standardized by the 40s. It was not until later in the decade that standards were begun begun to be hashed out for the transmission and reception of electronic color signals. This standardization process combined the structural elements of already established protocols of communication regulation and the common practices of professional engineering organizations with the psychophysical test theories and scientific practices that had developed over the years in the study of the relationship between color and vision. Early on, there were four main companies competing for the systems to be adopted uh, as the U.S. color standard. RCA, CBS, Color Television Inc., and Philco. CBS, the first company to present their system to the FCC in 47, was pushing for approval of their wideband field sequential system. RCA and Philco had offered dot sequential systems, while CTA had presented a line sequential system. From 49 to 53, the central period in which color standards were taken under consideration, there were three committees um, formed to study, test, and report on the state of color television. The Joint Technical Advisory Committee, which provided technical advice directly to the FCC. The Senate Advisory Committee on Color Television, which was commonly referred to the Condon Committee, because Condon was the the head of the committee. He was also uh, the president of the National Bureau of Standards. Um, and the NTSC, which was reconstituted in early uh, 1950. Um, The proposed color systems were put through various tests, primarily in the lab, but also in public settings and in the home, in order to determine which system would produce the most stable and realistic images in the most cost-effective and least disruptive way. Two of the most significant and interrelated issues studied by the committees were that of um, compression and fidelity. Due to the fact that color TV signals contain more information um, than monochrome, color systems require more bandwidth than the 6 megahertz bandwidth already set by the NTSC for monochrome. In the late 40s, CBS unsuccessfully pushed for the FCC to assign color to the UHF bandwidth, thereby hopefully allowing room for their qual- what they were calling then was their quality color broadcasts um, because they took up more space. What the FCC preferred however, was that the color signal be compressed in such a way that would take out some of the detail, thereby making the packet of data smaller and better able to fit onto the 6 megahertz standard. However, two questions remained. How or 
what or how much detail should be admitted and what would be a good enough color image if compression was prioritized. Um, as part of this, uh, his project to reconstruct a general history of compression, Jonathan Stern has developed the term perceptual techniques, which he defines as, quote, the application of perceptual research for the purposing of economizing signals. And as Stern and Dylan Mulvin have argued, they've done some work on uh, television compression and the standard system, color television represents, quote, a major node in compression history. Debates and studies and setting standards for both monochrome and color television have been defined in relation to the narrow band versus wide band requirements or capacities of various proposed systems. While acknowledging that wide band systems would allow for more picture detail, they would also require more space on the spectrum, which would result in a smaller number of television stations. In their UHF proposal, Frank Stanton posited CBS is presenting cutting-edge quality color technology based, at least partially, on an argument that a larger amount of data would provide more visual information to the image and the eye, producing a more complex and substantially better visual experience. However, the counter-argument to this claim was that rather than thinking that compression leads to less quality, one should acknowledge that there's only so much information that the eye uh, can take in in order to reconstruct a realistic and quote unquote pleasing image, which means that some of the data is not necessary but surplus. Engineer B. D. Laughlin argued for the quote for the mixed highs technique, which I'm not going to go into what that exactly is, of compression in 1951, stating that quote the mixed highs principle is based on the well-established fact that the eye is insensitive to color and fine detail. Consequently, it's, a wa- it's wasteful of the spectrum to transmit three separate color signals for fine, detailed information. It was further argued that, quote, viewing at a distance made the need for such fine, detailed um, color irrelevant. Moreover, Donald Fink, chair of the NTSC board, argued that a color television system, quote, should never be called upon to reproduce an image that is more than pleasing to the human eye, since trying to construct and sustain a perfect color image is costly and, from his point of view, was unnecessary. The larger goal, he suggested, was for television system to be calibrated in such a way as to remain steady and a satisfactory range of pleasing images. Mara Mills considers this the politics of modulation, wherein ideas or theories about human perception um, are, are, quote, built into the transmission systems, the imagined senders and receivers of the messages, and the effects of signal thinking on styles of communication. In the NTSC recommendations, engineers, advisors, and regulators ultimately sought an approximation of verisimilitude in the image, and yet did not prioritize maximum levels of pic- picture detail. And moving in this direction, they considered the limitations of, the human, of human vision, of the screen, of the home as a viewing space, and of the many and varied potential problems, disruptions, and interferences that could affect or distort the transmitted electronic image. In the end, the beliefs and compromises made in this process in regards to what exactly was the necessary and what might be considered surplus remained in the structures of transmission and reception throughout the rest of the 20th century and beyond which, as both Stern and William Boddy have argued, um, left the American television system with little room for growth or change as color technology develops post-standardization. A regulatory emphasis on spectrum economy reigned in electronic color, limiting it to the minimum amount of color information needed to trick the eye into seeing a complete and good enough image. Even after the standards issue was settled, however, 
the issue of how to construct a stable and replicable system of color production, um, production, transmission, and reception was still at issue. Uh, CBS had broadcast some color programs, testing and expanding its system during the period after it was awarded approval, but the network put its system briefly on hold during the Korean War and then ended production of its set and color system at the close of 54, although they continued to produce programming, quite a bit of programming into the mid-50s and then died out a bit uh, at the end of the 60s and then revitalized things mid-1960s, I mean at the end of the 50s. However, even though it offered compatibility, many know that the RCA system was not fully developed at this time of its approval, which meant that it would have to be further refined through the mid-50s. While RCA's system was serviceable in many ways and even proved to be quite spectacular on occasion, it was also unpredictable, often requiring significant technical management to successfully transmit an image without flicker, bleeds, or degradation. In fact, even after the NTSC system was in full and regular use for many years, it was still considered to be so unreliable that the acronym for the NTSC was rather frequently and jokingly referred to, especially by engineers, as really standing for never twice the same color or never the same color or no true skin color. The reproduction, transmission, and reception of NTSC color is a complex process Involving, at its very base, the combination of red, green, and blue, RGB, electrical systems produced from three camera tubes, each capturing the same scene in one of the three primary colors, which are then fed to the picture producer, reproducer, a tricolor picture tube. Dot by dot over a video channel to receiver where the three corresponding primary images are reassembled and superimposed in such a way as to appear as a single cohesive image to the human eye. The process in a compatible system, and the compatible system, if you haven't caught on to that yet, is broadcast both onto black and white TV sets as well as to um, color. So it has to be able to uh, have send both bits of information. <laughs> the process in a compatible system um, includes a monochrome signal that represents the translation of color video signals into differing levels of brightness and chrom- um, in the picture information. Analog compatible color then employs two components, luminescence and chrominescence. Luminescence is the weighted sum or intensity of light at a particular spot on a screen. Um, so a stronger luminescence signal means more, um, a more intense brightness of light. Chrominescence signals specify which color and at what saturation intensity is to be shown on a given point. The luminescence signal is what carries the monochrome information while the chrominance signal carries color. There's much room for error at all points of the process, leading to such color troubles such as no, co- no color, no color hold, incorrect colors, color humbars, and color snow. These are some of the examples. Um, the 1950 report from the Condon Committee detailed three general categories of potential sources of trouble, including improper registration, color breakup, and color fringing, which describes color trails that can sometimes follow rapidly moving images on the screen. Um, in panel 11 of the NTSC studies, researchers were testing for what had been understood to be common problems of all color systems on offer, including color bombardment, which is what they called a fatigue effect produced by the rapid sequence of primary colors, color flash effects, and the appearance of residual color in the scanning process. 
The panel concluded that some of these effects had been overstated, while others were present and could be mitigated by viewing conditions, such as sitting a certain distance from the screen or increased receiver screen size or viewing in the dark. The concerns over... The concerns over effects, however, lingered in press accounts um, of the technology. In particular, there was talk of eye fatigue and strain already, which was already a concern in black and white television. Um, as color and motion, especially through a volatile electronic system of transmission and reception, was thought to require possibly too much physiological effort on behalf of the viewer um, and could lead to moments of failure in vision, such as color bleeds and after images. Even with the precise color adjustments that were required at the input and transmission levels of color broadcast, outside forces such as interference and consumer tinkering threatened to upend fidelity and balance at the reception stage. So this is an example of something that would come. This is from the first RCA um, uh, television set. This is the instructions that would come with it for you to calibrate your um, uh, television um, in terms of color. What would be the... um, using color and tint controls. Um, <clears throat> after, after a color set was purchased, it would have to be installed and adjusted by a technician sent from the dealer. But after uh, tech installation was complete, re- receivers still had to be color adjusted on occasion by the owner and with the help of color cards held up to sets. Um, the first uh, consumer color television model, the CT100, for example, had over... Ten knobs dedicated to the adjustment of the color image alone, which made it an incredibly intricate technological object for the average consumer to manipulate and control. Um, In 1953, Richard Salient, who then was the executive assistant to Frank Stanton at CBS and was probably trying to get back at RCA, was quoted as saying, there isn't a single um, color set out there that I could operate at home with any degree of reliability. John Crosby agreed, writing, quote, much of what finally comes out on the color screen is the result of what the technicians adjusting the set do to it. And ultimately, you'll be your own technician and have to fiddle with your own knobs. You can wreak a lot of havoc. An article in Time in 56 that greatly angered NBC and RCA executives, and they have all these memos going back and forth and letters to um, the, the editor, opened with... What, what's wrong? So this article in Time opens with, what, what's wrong with color TV? The answer, if you have a color, t- a color set, you've almost got to have an engineer living in your house. <coughs> the peculiar... Let me... Sorry, you can't see my little notes describing what this is on the side. The peculiarities of perception come into play here as the human eye is more more sensitive to some frequencies of light, like green, than others, like red and violet, and color television systems had to account for this unbalanced sensitivity in order to reproduce, reproduce colors that resonated with viewers' perception of the natural world. There are variations in color perceptions across individuals, too which was addressed by Gould, who suggested that color tuning does not involve, quote, absolute rights or wrongs, since individual tastes do vary. And by the NTC, NTSC. The committee's Panel 16 report states, regarding color fidelity, the final conclusion is that the appreciation of color is so highly subjective that possibly no setting will prove pleasing to all, to all of a group of critical observers. This need not be too disturbing, for the success of color motion pictures and color photography show that most people are not critical observers, and that color does, in fact, add to the pleasantness of a picture. 
So again, we sort of have a sense of um, that referring to pleasing rather than um, uh, complexity, um, in a sense. In their own attempts to contend with the subjectivity and instability of color perception in relationship to a color system that was itself sometimes inconsistent or unstable, RCA and NBC employed a variety of approaches and theories meant to contain, manage, and stabilize the viewer's experience of electronic color. And some of these were adapted from outside cultural and industrial theories. The promise of eventual stabilization and standardization for color was central to NBC's campaign to sell the technology not only to consumers, but perhaps even more essentially to sponsors, advertising agencies, producers, and affiliates. The commercial nature of television, and more specifically the fact that at this point, program producers were often the advertising agencies and sponsors, made this an even more pressing issue, as product sales partially rested on consistency and appeal in product packaging and identification. In fact, a good portion of the discussion and demonstrations of color during the first half of the 50s centered on the question of fidelity of images of of products and product demonstrations rather than programming. The calibration and standardization of color in television was, I would argue, defined in relation to to commercial image making much more closely than other color media forms, such as film or photography. A 1950 memo to David Sarnoff from Alfred Goldsmith, who was head of research at RCA, details the way color television would be considerably more costly than monochrome. Um, And this is a result of uh, of the need to manage its stability. And this is going to affect sponsors, obviously. In general, it could be assumed that color adjustments must be about 10 times as accurate as black and white adjustments. This means constant and unremitting care in adjustment, which in turn is translated into higher operating costs and maintenance costs. It was in this context that NBC had to convince both sponsors and audiences that color was worth the added expense and effort, even while network management was grappling with their own ambivalence and difficulties with the technology. In this period, from the, the, the network was applying lessons learned from the FCC-NTSC standardization process, from the, from the, also from the film industry, most specifically Technicolor, and the commercial design arts, while also developing their own techniques of color science and management, including color harmony in makeup, fabrics, paints, lighting, and product design. Recognizing their significance to the color project, NBC had included sponsors and products in the technical standards process, at least since the end of 1950. Companies such as Coca-Cola and Pet Milk had been included in the audiences of RCA field field tests in 1951, along with distributors, dealers, affiliate representatives, and agency personnel. And in the fall of 51, NBC had converted their Studio 3H into an experimental color research studio. That's what they called it in which they also performed field tests and demonstrations to sponsors and others. Even during the final standards test in 1953, um, the NBC broadcast that was certified by the NTSC as conforming to the new standard specifications, um, sponsors were present and part of the demonstration, which involved the comparison of colored televised images of products next to their originals. In order to sell color to sponsors and agencies while also training their production units in its use and management, NBC deployed its Color Corps, um, which consisted of a network art director, an executive producer in charge of color coordination, a technical supervisor, a color director, and a handful of color consultants. This all sounds somewhat redundant to me, but... um, And one of their color consultants was the um, Academy Award-winning Hollywood art director Richard Day. 
This group developed and attended color clinics, which were large demonstrations of products broadcast live in Rockefeller Center, um, color workshops, which were training sessions for agency producers, and color demonstrations, which were live presentations of entertainment programming and also product demonstration. Um, these events targeted... Um, both high-profile sponsors like Bristol-Myers and those with specific color needs like Eastman Kodak, Helena Rubinstein, who did makeup, and Jell-O, to name a few. Um, if color harmony and calibration were not practi practiced carefully, colors could appear off and threaten to disrupt the selling process. <clears throat> um, Well-known post-war color consultant Howard Ketchum detailed the remarkable things that the electronic process could do to color. He explained that red bleeds uh, into other colors, blue is especially vulnerable, turning blue tones to purple, and that this problem is acute in outdoor scenes. Dark reds don't translate well, yellow appears shades lighter on television, neutral grays are distorted and grayed, or pastel colors are brighter or more intense on the screen. The resulting effects on product color could be appalling, according to Ketchum, in, as preserves um, turn black, this is a quote, as preserves turn black, white becomes gray, copperware looks like silver, beer labels show up black, shrimp reproduces so white it looks unreal, margarine looks like ice cream and rice comes out appearing dirty. Silverware produces scintillating series of black blurs and necktie colors darken against white shirts. As explained in the, uh, in the workshops, NBC was using the Container Corporation of America's Color Harmony Manual to set their color standards. This manual is based on the Oswald color system. Um, and in the 1920s, uh, William Oswald worked with the German paint um, industry to create what he believed to be a highly rationalized system of harmony based on the bringing together of mathematical calibrations of color with a consideration of the psychological sensations produced by color stimuli. NBC received 600 color sample chips based on Oswald's system and used them for testing purposes and in their experimental color broadcasts. Adapting Oswald's system for the particular needs of color broadcasting allowed NBC to anticipate problem, problematic meetings of different colors as well as to ascertain which colors work best under particular circumstances. Yet, in compatible color, they also had to test how color transmissions would look on black and white monitors. So NBC engineers keyed in the color testing chips to the Munsell gray scale um, as well. In one workshop, NBC's art director promised that by early 54, the network would develop, based on these color ships, standards for inks and dyes, fabrics and costumes, pigments, makeup, commercial art, as well as film and paint fields. The corporate adoption of Harmony expanded to include virtually everything contained within the program's mise-en-scene. Of course, color harmony um, in, in the mise-en-scene was a lesson NBC was taking from Hollywood's experience with color and the framings of color television as excessive and trivial are similar to concerns about um, and or problems with color and film during the 30s and 40s. The enforced micromanagement of, of the technicolor process in Hollywood's studio production was done to control for the various aesthetic problems and production complications arising out of the peculiarities of its color system. By the time Technicolor came out with its three-strip process and it instituted its onset management system, it had been criticized at times for producing candy-coated, often fake-looking color that might lend itself to fantasy, but had little uh, connection to notions of realism in the minds of many critics and spectators. David Bordwell notes that there was a double bind for color film at the time. If color was artificial or unnatural, audiences would notice and complain. If color blended in seamlessly, it would not be noticed enough, and therefore, studio heads argued, not worth the cost. As Scott Higgins describes, 
um, how it, Scott Higgins describes how in trying to find the right balance with Technicolor in the 30s, there was a mood, move towards the restrained mode, making color functional without overemphasizing it. In order to achieve such equilibrium, color was managed at every level of the diegesis, similar to what I just described, limiting, but even more so perhaps, limiting color contrasts and balancing hues in order to create, uh, quote, harmonious compositions of color. Um, <clears throat> here's an example of color harmony, what's been defined as poor color harmony versus pleasing. Again, the word pleasing. In both film and television, color harmony and compatibility could also be managed through lighting. Uh, TV, NBC art director Norm Grant underscored the importance of lighting in workshops, claiming that 60% of color design was with light and that four times the amount of light would be needed for color productions than was needed for monochrome. He also discussed the use of gelatins, which could be used to alter set or object colors to affect hue as, hues as an additional management technique. Um, in addressing the topic of lighting, Grant emphasized what it, it, that it must be worked into the entire management system of color and that a vigilant onset color consultant would be needed in order to coordinate all factions of the production process. He says, a color TV expert must understand more than lighting. He must have a knowledge of the physical and psychological aspects of color as well and the aesthetic sense to know what colors go well together. He must have the ability to plan color patterns, maintain color control from scene to scene while keeping hot colors down and to plot out rapidly changing colors. Beyond onset harmony and considerations about the color of products and their packaging, the representation of human flesh was also a primary concern for NBC. After viewing one of RCA's color demonstrations, one critic pointed out that this was a major problematic for the new technology. Quote, on color television, people are tinted from head to foot and look a little phony like dolls, he said. The FCC was critical of RCA's, RCA's representation of flesh tones in the 1950 decisions, state, stating the inability to accurately produce skin tones is a particular, particularly serious hand, handicap. As it was in film and photography, Caucasian flesh tones were the ultimate test of color fidelity. Some of these issues would be resolved through standardized makeup palettes, gels, and lighting, yet in a 1954 memo, NBC identified the source of the problem as stemming from, somewhat counterintuitively, the sensitivity and accuracy of the RCA system, stating, quote, because of the RCA-compatible system of color picks up the natural red of the skin and lips so accurately, in most instances, the flesh tone has to be lightened rather than emphasized to appear natural to the home viewer. The precision camera sees red pigment that is unnoticed by the human eye. Crosby noticed this in the NBC color test as well, remarking, the, true, the trouble isn't that color TV is not true. Actually, it's truer than Technicolor, but that it's too true. People's faces, and especially their ears, are a lot redder than we think, and the color cameras bring out something we tend not to notice in real life. The Condon Committee claimed it was the delicate nature of color balance that would cause issues in the reproduction of, of flesh color, quote-unquote flesh color, noting... A slight excess for green, for example, can transform a ruddy glow into a sickly pallor. Oops, sorry, this I meant to show. It's a 1956 ad for NBC. Um, besides the SMT color bar, S SMPT color bars, which were first used in 54, a key strategy to calibrate and standardize color adjustment was to employ a regular color test girl who would stand before cameras in a color studio before the broadcast of any 
Oh, you can't, you can't see this. This is Patty Painter, who I'll explain in a minute. Um, uh, stand before cameras in a color studio before the broadcast of any color program while technicians and cameramen made color adjustments to better achieve color f- fidelity of the flesh tones, using a singular white woman as the standard. Um, at CBS, this woman was a, quote, five foot one inch, 95 pound, ash blonde young woman whose complexion is pure cream and whose lips are bright ruby red. And she was appropriately named Patty Painter. She also made appearances in CBS's first um, broadcast um, in 1951 and premiere this big spe- uh, special. And she was called Miss Color Television. CBS also used another model, um, Ann Palmer, who in photos appears to be a similarly fair-skinned, young, petite blonde. A 1953 New York Times article profiled Marie McNamara, um, NBC's primary color girl, who was also in her 20s with red hair, blue eyes, and a fair complexion. The article reported that what makes Miss McNamara so valuable to the RCA color people is that she has what they call a natural complexion. In front of the camera, she requires no special makeup, as do the great majority of people, to combat combat the vagaries in reproducing color accurately. She also has a consistent complexion, meaning that her coloring never changes. To keep her job, Marie must avoid a suntan or exposure to bright sunlight. Um, This is also Marie. Uh, As work by scholars uh, such as Richard Dyer and Brian Winston have shown, young white women throughout the 20th century have problematically served as the flesh tone litmus test in color modulation in adjustments in television, film, and photography. For example, stills of white women in colorful dresses known collectively as Shirley cards were used by Kodak in the 50s, and China girls were images... China girls were images of white women placed beside color cards on real leaders for calibration by lab technicians, a process also eventually standard by the use of a single Kodak China girl. The use of the white female models as a standard was also a component of the NTSC Panel 11 testing process, which relied heavily on 24 Kodachrome images of white people in various settings. This is part of Jonathan and Dylan Mulvin's article a number of which were white women with alaba- quote-unquote alabaster complexions in close-up. Conse- consequently, Mulvin and Stern argue that the, quote, NTSC's test images effectively bias the format towards rendering white people as more lifelike than other races. <coughs> oh, wait. Oh, this is the NTSC image. One of them. Um, okay. Functional color television. The color core worked to convince agencies and sponsors that careful scientific management of technology and vision through color harmony and systems of calibration would allow the industry to perfect the deployment of color in ways that would enhance both the televisual aesthetic generally, the look of products specifically, and would engage the viewer-consumer on a deeper psychological level. Beyond the promises, beyond the problems introduced by color, There were the positive effects, as moving color images promised to intensify consumer response to programs and products. In an effort to bolster their arguments about color impact, NBC employed color specialists to conduct studies and present their research on color use. The resulting studies were then used to sell their new technologies to sponsors. So this is uh, Faber-Buren. One of NBC's most prominent consultants was Faber-Buren, the foremost color practitioner of the day and the author of the 1937 book, Functional Color. Now, functional color was a highly practical approach that first became popular during World War II for industrial design and which was based on the idea that strategic color use could lead to the creation of safer and more pleasant work environments in everywhere from schools and hospitals to large factories. 
Biren then expanded in, in the post-war era upon the working assumptions and goals of functional color by bringing in psychological studies and combining it with the goals and knowledge systems around mass marketing. He argued that the, quote, mood conditioning functions of color could be brought to bear not only in workplaces and institutions, but also in decisions regarding interior design in the home and how companies might select and employ color in relationship to their products or brands. Blazenek has argued that Biren, who eschewed scientific approaches to color harmony and measurement, reshaped commercial color practice in the post-war era by convincing big business that he had found a highly effective tool of social engineering. In one of the color studies commissioned by NBC and used in their color clinics, Biren claimed that two distinct modes were created by color. Um, Um... the active and the passive. And he argued that the TV industry needed to be aware of these effects in order to create the desired mood in the viewer or the cons- viewer consumer. He also noted that pure colors, quote, pure colors are likely to be, so, to be too severe and that too much harping on any one color is generally going to be distressing to viewers. These mood effects, it was believed, were powerful message, messages sent to consumers by sponsors and advertising agencies that would strongly influence their purchasing decisions. It also held the possibility of going wrong, as an advertiser could choose a color that would stimulate a mood, like, for example, the ominous, deadly, depressing color black, that would generate a mood that one might not want connected to their product. As functional color claims, your color choice was an opportunity to express your taste, personality, or mood. These presumed emotional color effects were obviously distinct from the uh, psychophysical discussions of color perception that framed the testing periods of the technology, And yet both discourses engage in theories that must grapple with the subjectivity, variability, and peculiarities inherent in the relationship between human subjects and color vision, while also working towards a process of standardization and generalizable theories. This experimental color broadcast period is so very telling about the specific promises and failures of electronic color and reveals not only the importance played in commercialization and standardization, but also in the stirrings of a conscious construction of a televisual aesthetic that, as I said, was really crafted in relationship to the selling of product. In 1953, speaking to television engineers and and producers, uh, NBC color director Dick Ward said... Uh, One more point I'd like to make here is how we think of color versus black and white in terms of your framing of a picture. I'm afraid in black and white that because of the problem of getting shows on the air and the fact that the medium grew as fast as it did, we were often obliged to forget everything, but the fact is that as long as you held a reasonable amount of subject matter in a picture and your framing, it was all you could be expected to worry about. And this is sort of... You know, I, I don't know, part of the argument about um, perhaps not being deliberate in terms of creating a, an early aesthetic for television. In addition to your responsibility as an artist, and I like to think of ourselves as artists, in presenting a good photographic image that the person sees in his home, you now have another responsibility, and that is color itself. So here, color is introducing, a, his, in his claim, is another level of responsibility, sure, but also a, a higher level of um, artistic practice or aesthetic um, construction. Color was an enormous responsibility, and not only in the artistic sense. Color had uh, to be precisely managed and balanced with the realization that, that color in itself is highly subjective, as is a property of light and its modification. The color in television was difficult to standardize and stabilize. The belief that color had the power to shift both emotion and vision 
Commercial imperatives required a rigidity around the control of the technology. Um, and c color could be seen as either excessive or trivial or both. Although working mechanical color systems had been available since the late 20s, it took decades to advance the technology to the point that it functioned well enough for networks, um, stations, regulators, sponsors, and consumers, and it took many more years to be fully integrated into television's financial production, aesthetic, and reception processes. And if you want to use some time in the question and answer period, I can talk a little bit about programming as well if you have questions about that. Um, NBC color programming, which began in 54 with sports, spectaculars, and documentaries, would go through its own experimental phase in the late, mid to late 50s, but color television would not be deemed a, successful, um, a success until the start of the 1960s. The period explored in this, in this presentation is only a small portion of an expansive and complex history of color television, rich in detail and uniquely revealing about electronic color and its relationship to vision, desire, and consumerism um, and fidelity, as well as other related color media technologies and formats. And that's it. Yes, yes. That child has turned into a mm -hmm. figure with stringy hair and stopped eating and bathing. It's just been destroyed by watching television. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of many examples of this sort of made-up child destroyed by just by the very act of watching television. Whenever I hear about the ways that TV can harm you, I think back to the television. Yes. And I wonder to what extent it's just totally made up and crazy versus to, or maybe not crazy, yes. but made up versus there's actually something there. And so when you were listing some of the uh, color troubles, when I see eye strain and color bombardment, yes. I'm wondering to what extent that is a kind of real thing versus a sort of anxiety about how this technology can harm uh, particularly susceptible viewers, especially young. No, absolutely. I think that's a great point. That there is, there are some things that were actually, you know, visi very visible problems. Um, but there were also very much. There was that concern about, like, and I think you pulled out the idea of color bombardment. Is I think absolutely one of them. That the NTSC panel said, I think that's if you just sat at far enough distance from the screen, you wouldn't have to worry about that. But it was this idea that being overwhelmed by the image. Um, that I think links up to what already some of the discourses that were already there for black and white television. So certainly I think that's part of it. Um, and yet color held this other, uh, there were some early descriptions of people, like early press reports of people watching early demonstrations of color television. Well, not er that early, but mid around this period. Um, and some people were saying, oh, it was glorious. And a lot of people said, oh, it just gave me a headache. Um, again, this is a sense of being overwhelmed um, by something, um, by, by color in this moment that, um, I mean, was somewhat remarkable given that the screens were relatively small. Um, but if you see this kind of these excess saturations, and I think the bleeding was, the pos was also a potential area for people to find that distressing visually to them if it wasn't calibrated correctly. No, I mean, I think a lot of those discussions happen more. There were, were concerns about excess, but that it just read as off, right? And that it, or it read as that idea of like being too candy coated or something. Um, but the particular problems with color, as you see, like the the like images not matching up with like the you know the the kitchen image that I showed you, for example, um, were distressing in a different way because they're about color not meeting 
the image, um, a, dis- a different kind of distortion, where the film process, um, being on film, allows it to be much more stable. Um, it's still the issue of fidelity is there, but the stabilization uh, um, question isn't there. Oh, in terms of um, the period in b- before the the brief period where it's like say the late forties with just monochrome television, um, yes, there were problems with like how you know there are those stories of how extreme early television makeup had to be right that you had to emphasize the monochrome nature of it to a certain extent that it's all like white and black and you did have to be careful. Um, uh, I don't know. There, there weren't. The, there was not the issue of color bleeding. Um, if, if you're presenting it in black and white, but but maybe more about um, how d- strong the image comes forth, because it's also a small screen. Um, you want a larger contrast, I guess, is what I'm saying. So there is th- those concerns, um, and yet, but I don't think it wasn't until color where they saw particularly how problematic it could be for sponsors' products that it became. Um, a concern that you would have to regulate it to such an extreme degree. Yeah? Uh, was there any concern or reaction in the black and Asian community about their skin colors not being shown properly on TV? Yes. I mean, I ha- I mean, well, at this period, it's still pretty early. Hardly anyone is seeing it. But in terms of this issue of, yes, how... Um, a non-Caucasian film, right? If you are calibrating to Caucasian um, to Caucasian skin, non-Caucasian skin comes out looking either it's too dark and you can't see any detail. And certainly that was part of um, concern. But at this point, there's also not that many people of color on television um, more generally. But it's obviously a problematic that's built into the system that people have talked about that's happening not just in terms of television, but film and photography and the like. Yes, in a sense. I mean, there, there different genres develop in relationship to color at different points. So, and, and they can be they can vary. So, one area that they thought would be a great advantage to color. So, they're both thinking strategically in terms of what would be like spectaculars were one example. So, these big live productions that there were that, that some of them were done in black and white, but they were seen as big investments to grab attention to people to color to have this sense. Um, Pat Weaver was quoted as saying, like, you want to have the audience thinking. 
because they would make an announcement broadcast in color, but if you're watching in black and white, you would know that you're, you're not seeing it color. So that you would see this big event that's happening that's all branded around color um, and is um, you know, a big musical production that's in, that would have great sort of richness or density, complexity of color. Supposedly, you don't know, right? But you would have a sense of missing out on something, right? So these kind of grand genres that are about selling color, but also careful um, moments of thinking like, oh, sports would be a good place for color um, to have you both feel like you're more in the, the experience of it, but also to distinguish better in terms of what the field looks like versus the individuals. And some of those early experiments in in, in filming sports were really bad because they had a difficulty getting really uh, moving objects with color. They, that's where one of the problems was where it really came out as... And so someone running across the field left like a streak and it made the color seem um, more problematic. So they backed off until they could do more experiments with that. But other areas would be... Um, they did a lot of documentaries in color starting in 1960. Um, uh, there, I saw a lot of proposals for different kinds of documentaries that would take you maybe under the sea or do all these kinds of things that would have this, almost like a how you would use IMAX experience or 3D, right, to have this kind of more intense experience. Um, but they were also, there was a, a number of operas that were initially done in color. There was, they were trying to make a high-quality connection with, quali- with color, both for their um, sponsors and the audience. Um, that there's, you're something, investing in a color set or investing in a color program means you're getting more for your money somehow. So there was, does that the kind of answer? Standards battle over um, you know, high bandwidth, higher fidelity versus uh, you know, compressed color, which will get us something that's good enough but will allow us to have more diversity of channels. Yes. Um, and that seems like a really important and interesting kind of you know sort of crucial battle that happens in it. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the actors that are involved in that? Are there does, does some of the networks? would prefer there to be less competition because they already dominate the space? Are there smaller groups that are lobbying for one? We talk about the, the standards wars and the lobbying that's happening there. Well, it's com- yeah, it's complicated on a number of fronts because some some of the like some of the concerns about political maneuvering around color was that okay, so CBS comes out with a system that's non-compatible, so that uh, you um, meaning that you couldn't see it on your black and white set. They said that they could develop a converter that would cost $100 that you could add to it, but TV manufacturers didn't like that they would have to sell also a uh, converter. Um, so there's, so they were lobbying um, the FCC not to accept the, the CBS as, st- as standard. Um, and a lot, along, a lot of the discussion was that CBS's color was probably better than anything else, and RCA was kind of running trying to catch up, um, but they wanted to be first in color for a number of reasons, but they also had um, a manufacturing company in place to produce television sets, which CBS did not. Um, So there were, uh, the other idea was that, you know, black and white television was just getting off, just starting to, the black and white sets were just on sale, right? They were just being on the market. And so the idea was that CBS might be coming to crush the already established black and white market by, develop, by jumping over them with color. So they all had a sense that color was there, was inevitable in some way, but maybe that this was too happening too fast because we needed to build up to it with black and white because we already have a 
commercial system in place to do that. And so part of CBS's argument where I, that I was talking about in terms of using moving to UHF instead of VHF was also they, I mean, they, they were positioned second place to NBC in a lot of ways. So they were asking um, to move to a different bandwidth. Um, they were um, seeing that as both good for their system, but also they didn't have as many stations that were already set up on the VHF um, television stations. So there's, there's a whole complicated... that, And I realized when I first was proposing this project, I kept thinking, like, I don't know why people get so stuck in this NTSC period and, de- and telling the story, and it seems so dry often. But the truth is there's so many fine details in this process that I can see how it becomes this... In retelling it, you kind of... You get a little stuck. <laughs> yeah. Given that one of the standards would have allowed for a greater diversity of uh, channels, was anybody making arguments to the FCC around uh, diversity of content programming or sort of public interest arguments or free speech arguments or sort of that nature of Not ar- be better for democracy? Not around that, but around RCA when they when CBS first was um, given approval for their system in 1950. RCA um, came back with a uh, lawsuit saying that it was um, it was based on public interest, that because this was planned obsolescence, which is really interesting to think about um, in the context of our own world, right? That this was a, this was not in the public interest. That we that you're asking the consumers to purchase very expensive sets, which eventually they do anyway, right? But this was their argument. So public interest came in in this very interesting way, really about planned obsolescence and the fact that CBS's um, sets weren't compatible. John? Um, at the risk of being the guy that asked the question about his own research, <laughs> can I what? Can I go, can you go to the previous slide? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the conclusion one. Um, so this barren list of uh, colors, mm-hmm. right? was this derived from any actual psychology, or is he just making stuff? <laughs> well, he was a little bit, him and Ernest Dichter were, do you know Ernest Dichter of the same period? They were these, um, uh, they claimed that they were basing a lot of their ideas, him on psychology, but the very general sort of notions of psychology, Dichter more on psychoanalysis, but um, in very pop form. Um, but saying that there's a connection to, there's identity formation that goes on. Dichter, it was much more, he entered color too, but he was, was much more about like the, the kind of brand of hat that you wear is very telling of your identity and who you are and who you are underneath. And so first doing this analysis and then using that analysis to sell back to the, to say to advertisers, like, look, if you do this and you sell it this way, you're going to activate this part of this person's personality, right? And so Buren was similar. There's some based on, like, larger discussions of, old historical discussions of color theory that were, or color analysis that were based on this. So he's tapping into some of, some older notions as well, cultural notions around particular colors and what they, the mood effects that they might have. But he used his expertise as um, employing this kind of psychoanalysis, or not psychoanalysis, psychology that was really about mass marketing psychology more than anything else. Yeah, because I'm just looking at black and white and thinking about the skin color. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. uh, Looking for a connection there that uh, might have something to do with the way that, like, the perceptual psychophysics, which... Um, you know, it's changed since the 50s, but the right. engineers were taking it very seriously at the time. Right. Um, until they're like, you know, throw up their hands and say, basically, screw it, this is the best we can do. Um, 
But it would be, I mean, if this was, a, if there was, on the flip side of the color discussion, there was this other sort of psychology at work as well that's interesting. But that's it really. Sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you can't really go that far. You, Burn is uh, really just kind of. Well, I mean, he's important. The thing is that he's important, and there I've been looking into him a little bit more deeply. But and his papers are at Yale. There's a whole collection of his papers, so that might actually be a place to think about, or to find something that might connect him um, more deeply of what he's reading or what he's researching. Um, so that, but that's actually a really good suggestion. Mm-hmm. I have a question about you. I love that uh, image you had of all the knobs. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm old enough to remember our family TV <laughs> yeah. having a lot of things that could be adjusted. Right. So I'm curious, like, the materiality of these things. Is there a point where some decisions are made about, like, not just which knobs are there, but, like, what you can adjust? What's on the front of the TV? What's in the back? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think some things are moved to the back, um, and then they start selling. This this was their first RCA's first model, and then in subsequent models, a lot of their marketing was uh, in response to this. So they would say, uh, you know, they would have children actually playing with knobs, which is (laughs) probably parents' worst nightmare in a way, but saying that children really uh, can do it just as easily, right? So there was a move to some semblance of simplicity. Um, and so there was more sort of calibration in the system. But it's interesting. where they decide which things are really like, we're going to give you these three. And these are, like, they, yes. they come to some point where they standardize what really matters to us. You know, that's actually something I haven't explored yet. And that's a really good question. Because the, what becomes... Internal standardization from the set versus what is on the outside is a really interesting question. So it's something I should look into. I'll just remark that once when I was talking about this with someone, there are you know there's expert calibrators now that apparently there are. Someone showed me this. There's a message board always for everything, and so people are always sending, showing me weird message boards. But this one was about um, calibration of HDTVs, and there are these traveling calibrators that will come across the country to calibrate your TV exactly. But there's a belief that it's not just the model and the make, but your individual TV needs to be taken care of, which is fascinating to me, right? So that we still, in this idea that we have everything is automatic to us and is uh, somehow... Fidelity is already, is already there and built into our system. There's these experts out there in this community of technophiles that, that probably have similarities to audiophiles that believe there's still work to be done. Um, and there's also this discussion, there's some of the discussions are like, they calibrated it perfectly, but I still don't like it. You know, some of this idea of that's not really um, this, to my liking. Um, Economics of this and also I'm old enough to remember the switchover and the hype about color television. I'm just interested a little bit if you could say a little bit about the commercial campaigns to sell color television to the wide public. Sure. I mean some of it is I, I, I think I have some of these um you look at some of these ads. This one is fascinating to me because it's trying to match compa- the notion of compatible to products. Um, uh, so um, And so there's these ads out there, right? But there's also a whole branding attempt that certainly NBC was doing and was not... was. <laughs> 
quite clearly not doing a very good job of in the 50s. But one of their most successful things was the branding of the peacock, um, which I have all these memos where they're going, should we do a rainbow or should we do a peacock or should there was some other, or, you know, they had the chimes, which were, they colored, which was a holdover from radio, which, you know, NBC chimes with the sound, right? So you were branded in relationship to the sound of the three notes that were NBC. Um, And then they wanted to do something that, which was really interesting. They kept saying, we want a brand that, even if you're not seeing it in color, reminds you of color. So a rainbow or um, uh, a peacock, if you're watching in black and white, you're reminded of color. Because this is part of the difficulty is that where are people going to see color television? Um, and so a lot of the programming actually was geared towards afternoon hours when they started to get complaints from dealers that people are coming to our showroom, I can't show them anything in color because color, color shows were mainly on prime time. So they did a lot of um, color programs during the day or as color inserts in shows like Home and Today, um, specifically for um, dealers to show in their, in their room. And then there was the, uh, this idea of tavern viewing, too, um, and other public sites of, um, uh, there's some great article that was like, talking about bloodshot, making some joke about bloodshot eyes, you know, the, the first eyes that will see color will unfortunately be bloodshot, but um, uh, so they were trying to think that way, of thinking larger, they would have National Color Television Week, or they used a lot on color, um, on kids programming, um, the idea, again, with this, the sense that the kids will bring the parents towards this product. Um, so they, Howdy Duty was one of the first color programs, but they also had um, a NBC did this thing with Tommy Tint, was some kind of character that they were trying to um, have ch- kid events around Tommy Tint, and you'd get coloring books to color in um, color televisions and stuff. Um, so yeah, that part is really interesting because it's like because most people the the price of the sets go down in 1950 end of 1955 they're cut in half so it's a little more accessible but still not many people are really going to have them until was 60s. There, uh, <clears throat> was there a big right now at this stage, I mean it seems you know in reading these reports it just seems like this is folly for our for NBC because it's really every in RCA. I mean NBC is really being told by RCA this is your push. Like Sylvester Weaver was taken away some of his, he was the president was taken away some of his responsibilities so he could focus more on color and was given a color title. Um, so this was supposed to be their their mission for the 50s and for them it was very mixed but for RCA was also their parent company the idea was that this was going to be they wanted to be first because they knew in part that this is where everyone was going to go eventually was the advertising Yes. Well, the the larger context is that, as uh, briefly I just touch touch on touch on with uh, Faber Buren, and talk about Regina Blazenik does this great history of this period where, um, you know, color appliances were big at this time. So um, they want to uh, color color cars. Um, so color was being seen as uh, a luxury in a sense because these were products you could you could buy a pink refrigerator and you didn't have to plan on having it for. Um, in fact, they were talking. Some of this language is about like 
inserting planned obsolescence into color because it's going to be connected to fashion. So you wouldn't buy your your refrigerator for 50 years. You would buy it while pink was in fashion. Um, so they were sold, networks were selling them on this idea that you know, this is a, how will people know you have pink appliances unless you do this? This is a perfect place for you. And so Ford, for example, did this moment of kind of synergy in 1954 where they brought, they bought, 1955, they bought all these color sets, like 25,000 color sets from NBC and put them in their showrooms. Um, so that they, that they could both have this public demonstration of television but bring people into their car, their to see these new cars, and then they would sponsor Ford Theater in color, where more they would have more ads. Um, but other people were thinking, particularly food people, were really nervous around it, um, and they would have to redo their packaging often, um, so they would look better on color TV, and it was expensive. So a lot of the ads actually for color, instead of sponsoring a whole color program, they would do this is a, like magazine style advertising, just segments, color seg- like color commercials. So it was a complicated, long, convincing process, I think. I, I remember in the late 90s uh, in the trade magazines and newspapers and so on, there's a lot of talk about how uh, HD is coming really soon. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And they kept saying that. Um, and one of the, uh, the only kind of negative voice was the assumption was this is going to be fantastic. There were negative voices, but the only thing expressed in the trades was from actors who are very concerned oh, yes. about um, being seen yeah. because uh, you can see all their blemishes and imperfections and the kinds of things that make them yes. hide in a low-definition television before this, like an acne breakout or something, couldn't be hidden right. in HD. And I'm just wondering how stars reacted to uh, the notion of the coming of color when they're anxious about it. I didn't see that much um, in terms of that. There was more concerns about from war- there was things about wardrobe people. I think a lot of the reliance was that people believed that makeup would take care of a lot of it. Um, and Max Factor did this big push too about color. That I started offering color TV makeup to consumers in the mid '50s. Weirdly, um, selling it as color television makeup. Um, I know. Um, so I think I think people were concerned about. Um, wardrobe issues but yeah you're but i didn't see as much about and some stars were seen like lucille ball would be better for color she was also seen as very good for film it's the idea because of her complexion and her red hair i don't know why red hair necessarily was a, such a uh um signifier in the calibration thing anyway um so there were but i didn't see like the coming of sound kind of anxieties about it necessarily yeah yeah. This is from now very foggy memory, so I don't even, I've always wondered about it. I have a memory of being very, very young, and our family having a black and white television still, and there being a product you could buy, which you put on top of your mm-hmm. black and white screen to make it color, and it was grassy color on the bottom, <laughs> green and blue. Is this a thing from, have you ever, were is there, it? So, so the bigger meta question is, were there other material things that tried to um, yeah. Like a, a gelatin? Yes. Is it like a, what was that kid's show? Winky Dink. Wink, yeah, like Winky Dink, like you would be able to draw, like a... Winky Dink and you, you would put a, a plastic transparency on the yeah. screen and you'd have colored crayons and the cartoon would stop and say like, help Winky Dink get to the top of the building and you would have to draw a ladder on the screen. So yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to offset a black and white television though. I think that they used color um, 
Crayons. Yeah, but I, but I mean, there may have been and some. The RCA might yeah. have devised reading yeah. and use specifically, you know, the identity yeah. use color. Crayons. The meta to this is just were there, I mean, of course, I've given you this strange, foggy memory. But no, but it makes me weird. But were there other weird little hacky things that tried to bridge this moment mm. between owning, only owning your black and white television and the future of color that you weren't able to participate in? Or was it yeah. like you were out of the loop? And yeah, I mean, you were sort of out of, out of the loop, but for a long time, most people were out of the loop, so it's a little bit like, I mean, it replicates the coming of television, black and white television in some ways, right, where early adopters were people that had either, that had a lot of money or had some specific reason. Like, I, my, my dad told me that my grandmother really wanted it because she was such a huge baseball fan, so they were one of the first on their blog to have it because she was obsessed with baseball and thought that would increase her viewing experience, but... Um, I think this idea of the public viewing and sort of, but but it was an investment, and so what was your what was the point, right? And so the other, you know, you might have later as it comes, you know, maybe your color television becomes the center point. You might then you start having multiple TVs, black and white, um, as smaller in other sides of the home, but that's not until like more the 60s. Just a, a, Yes, erasure or anti-erasure. Yes. 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 Yeah, there's an article that I've only I'm only made halfway through, so I don't know how it is. But yes, Oren Sother is her name, and the 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 article is like erasure or anti-erasure. It's about this debate. But yeah, there's um, uh, it's interesting that I mean the the question of sort of how the global question, right, is that. Um, in 58, the next, the next uh, country to adopt color is um, Cuba in 1958, which Cuban TV was weirdly advanced in a number of ways. Um, and then uh, and they took the NTSC system, um, Japan in the 60s. Australia was one of the latest in the 70s. Europe was really the 60s. So there's also these stories of people coming over from other countries to learn about how color television works from the production side um, that NBC is doing is some, you know, goodwill. And is that the moment you get competing, like, the PAL stand? Yes, yes, exactly. CCAM and PAL and, yeah, mm -hmm. different. And so NTSC is really in the Americas. Uh, PAL is, the, is Europe and CCAM is, I can't remember, is, Asia, is parts of Asia. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, um, if you think or don't think or would care to, care to speculate, what is, so what is this uh, strand of work or the approach that you're taking here? Is there something you can tell us about these moments of uh, transition to come? The one I'm thinking of beyond HTV would be the you know, Facebook's acquisition of Oculus Rift and this whole conversation about finally virtual reality. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, I, I think... I mean, I think it tells a number of things. I mean, it's interesting because in some ways it's about kind of the fits and starts of dissemination as well, those, those questions of the breaks of, um, of um, after 
innovation. So there's and there's so many of them in color television because you have mechanical systems in the late twenties. Um, and so where do you? In some ways, this feels foreign to us because we don't have the same blocks that might come, whether it's war, produ- you know, production needs or so forth that block certain moments. Um, but maybe in that idea of the inevitability, right, or um, the notions of being, um, you know, the discourses around the selling, particularly by network heads or NBC, like Sarnoff, right, talks in these kind of grandiose terms about, the, about it being part of the future and progress and inevitability and so forth. So that might have some, some connection. I don't know if I'm... The HD thing is interesting in terms of the term high-definition television is still is being used at this point um, for this in this discussion too about um, uh, compression and like high-definition television on the UHF. Yes. Yes. But color is as I wear. Yes. Yeah. But Jonathan has a. At for certain for, for certain yes, but Jonathan, you were gonna were you gonna add to that? I was just gonna add to that definition is not very similar to that's a fiction used in engineering talk, but it actually has nothing to do. With yeah, that's actually yes, that's a great point. Um, but you're right about the kind of length of the black and white, often seen as more grittier, realist, uh, right? That's why it's so interesting that you would say that some of the earliest color programming is documentary, because, you know, Edward R. Murrow, black and white, is some authenticity and yeah. gravitas. Right. But on the other hand, Edward R. Murrow and all the other serious documentarians, it's very much about export as per, like, Curtis reading the way. Yes, and right. Showing, showing off. So right. Even though black and white is associated with objectivity and realism, mm-hmm. um, color shows American superiority and advancement right. for you know exporting these documentaries uh, internationally. It's true, and so, I mean some of the some of the documentaries would be travel documentaries. So there's like a series of like Elizabeth Taylor in London, Sophia Loren in Italy, those kinds of things that you would see are about glamour and. Uh, you know, Sophia Loren eating pasta, you must have color, whatever. Um, but then some of them are those political documentaries of the 60s. Um, the Kremlin, or whatever, will be in... Yeah. Well, yes. So some of those are going to be in color, and, and so those are interesting choices. And the others are about vision. Yeah? On a similar note, I like the quotation where someone was talking about how uncanny it was to see color. Yes, yeah. Color in a box, but in a box, like, obviously color. Yeah. Uh, but... Well, again, he's, I mean, because it's, he's one of the few people who has a TV, right? And so he's trying, I mean, part of the quote, the, the context for the quotes that I'm saying, too, are there's a lot of description of what it looks like so that people start to understand what the experience is. So they're trying to be evocative, too, in their description to say, and some of them are like, nah, and some of them, you know, are saying this is, you know, you have to focus on the greens and this or that, or the reviews of early color television. They're like, it was great up until this point, and then this guy, the scene got too deep, and then the color got off, right? But that also might be only seen by that person's television set that way, or I don't know. There, there are, um, 
there are layers to that. But I think that's certainly what the network wanted them to think, was that this was going to be mind-blowing in a whole different way. But I think the truth is you'd be exposed to it slowly, and there's things about it that are kind of cool. Like most of the people that saw the demonstrations that were that I would read stories of in the newspaper, not in the NBC documents, were like, yeah, it's pretty good. Or sometimes would say, it's beautiful, but it gave me a headache, or those kinds of things, you know? So it's, it's still mixed. Can you talk a little bit about the, the programming and, and sort of the things that took, that took advantage of color? I'm curious if how many explicit references there were to color in the writing of the shows, Yeah. Um, whether... I mean, I, I think the most frustrating thing if I were watching something in black and white would be if I were not getting a joke that was going on. Or like, right, so it's um, like radio of the transition, right? Right, and, uh, and also, and sort of along with that, I'm also curious, there was, I know there's not a lot of sort of avant-garde or experimental TV going on at the time, but was there, was there stuff just playing with the raw medium of color TV? Oh, that's a good question. Ernie Kovacs would be the obvious. I know, that's exactly who I thought, but I don't, I don't think he did, no. You did? Yeah. He did, uh, at the end, he did color. I don't think he was really playing with color, though. Yeah. And the color wasn't very good, at least on the copy I watched. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea, yes. I mean, I think there was some, it wouldn't be overt, maybe not altogether overt, sometimes maybe mentioning the color of a costume or something, right? But I think it's more like, I was just reading reviews of Alice in Wonderland was a 1955 NBC production that apparently, from these reviews, critics really loved. And so their descriptions of this is... um, you know, if I was reading it as a viewer, I would start to question whether I needed to see this. It's like, you know, Alice in Wonderland, like you've never seen it. This, this is why color was good here, and this is why their use of color was so important. Um, and so I think it's more in those moments. And then the constant reminders from the network, like, this is brought to you in color, and if they, all their best programming is starting to be in color, you just have the overall sense that you're missing something, you know? Yes, yes, because there's, you know, one of the earliest, the, the early Disney films. And Disney was big in, um, I think I have something, um, early, uh, Disney was big in the technology of, color for film I think is it in here this is this schedule that I had from the NBC archives and I was thinking this this was a this was a oh god <laughs> the water the computer um, this boing Nick boing boing show I just started looking into was a um, was a um, was a cartoon um, and there was other cartoon program uh, animated programs that they did at Christmas time or in 1955 too. Um, so there was that. And then in 1960, ABC started doing their color programs like um, the Jetsons and they started with right off the bat with animation. Um, and another you know, big moment for color was 1961, the uh, wonderful world of color, um, which is when Disney came to NBC and left ABC. Um, and there, there's evidence in the archives of them having discussions long before that of trying to leave because of the idea or come up with a deal because of color and Disney are absolute match, right? 
So animation plays a big role in that, and you're right that it can be a more controlled color, um, and there's less chance that people will misinterpret it in some way. Um, as you know, it's more in a place where fantasy resides, and where colors can be bright and vibrant or off, and it doesn't. It's not distressing. But I would think in the fifties, I mean, Gerald McCoyne started as a, a on film. Yes. Won yes. An Academy Award as best animated short. Yes. And so it's already been promoted as color. People seen it in color. Yes. It'd be a great way to promote color by showing the black and white. That's great background. Yeah. Um, and all the other cartoons that were in color in the fifties would be recycled theatrical stuff like Warner Brothers cartoons that you knew were in color. They made in the thirties and forties. Some of them were. Or a lot of what? Yes. Yes. But there are some that were were original productions. Yes. But the point is, like, yes, and so the only thing I was going to say is that there were some, I think, original ones that were these big Christmas, they're part of like this Christmas spectacular idea. Um, the reason why I have, I was trying to get a sense, this is why they're in red, is how, there's a, a story that's like CBS, after they lost their system, they were no, and they weren't producing sets, sort of didn't do much programming, but it appears this is, the red blocks are all CBS. So they were doing programming 55, 56, and then they stopped doing a lot of their programming and then picked it up again. So that's why I was, that's why I was tracking uh, some of these things. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.